Amen. We're going to be moving now into the second half of this letter, this epistle of 1 John, John's first letter of three, second and third John, obviously following. But the word, the focus, the focus now we're moving into is sonship. We have been dealing with fellowship, and you will not find that word in this next section. It trans- transitions into sonship. John's emphasis is on being born of God. Uh, this passage ties in with, uh, with John 3, the chapter that we're going to be in, and, and an emphasis that God is love. And we'll also see that John will clearly state that a true child of God will prove his spiritual birth by being obedient to God's word. Folk, John pulls no punches here. He pulls no punches. He said, look, there ought to be some level of evidence. There has to be some evidence of this great profession of faith, this great transforming power of the Holy Spirit that you would respond in this manner. In John 3, he warns us today that there are counterfeit Christians. There are those who may say one thing but not really be what they claim to be. And so this warning is really about counterfeits or those who pretend. The key verse, 1 John 3.10, says a true child of God practices righteousness and loves other Christians despite differences. So as we enter into the text today, we are going to obviously be pointing at sonship and how that affects, transforms our lives. Would you please stand at the reading, if you are able, at the reading of God's Word. We do this in honor of the Scripture, but certainly understand those with physical limitations. So please, if you are able. 1 John chapter 3, verses one through 10. This is the word of God given to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, speaking of Christ, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, brothers and sisters, please, we pause for this moment. We're going to come back and really address that particular verse. It's very important that we understand it in context of what we're saying. Please, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Is there any questions? (laughs) 
That's about as clear as it gets, isn't it? Father, please, if there be any lack of understanding in this assembly this morning, may the Holy Spirit make known to all that there is evidence of a born-again Christian. And Father, sometimes I've, I've witnessed those who came to Christ very late in life and, and, Father, the only regret, that the, uh, the only tragedy in that is that they missed so many years of joy. <laughs> but, now, but now they can go home to be in glory. Father, I pray that if there be one lost soul here today, that you would bring them unto yourself, that you would call them to your Son, and that they would come to know the joy of eternal life. Father, help us, not just with our understanding, but with the application of these precious texts in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please be seated. I have to reread a portion of this passage because as in not uncommon, different versions of the text will express things through a different interpretation. doesn't make them wrong. It just brings a different way of saying the same thing. But I love the King James on this one, and you'll find it if you have the King James, New King James. I love verses 1 and 2. May I read it for you. Behold! Doesn't that grab you? That's the way it starts. That's the way it starts. Behold! What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we sons of God and doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Do you get the text now? Does it, does it come alive just a little bit more? The, the word, the Greek word in that verb first opening, salvo, if you will, it says stop. Stop. Behold. Wait. Slow down. Don't move forward. Don't go past this point until you get what I'm about to say. Jesus used to say, verily, verily. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Here John says, behold. This is huge. This is huge, and we got to understand this. I, I want to read for you, please. Allow me from a, from a great old Anglican preacher of the late 1700s to early 1800s, Robert Hawker, and, and, and listen to these words. Oh, it's beautiful language. This is a chapter in every world. And there is a chapter in every word and a sermon in every letter. How it opens with behold, because it is such a striking portion of Scripture that the Holy Ghost would have us pay particular attention to it. Behold, says he, read other Scriptures if you like with a glance, but stop here. I have put up a waymark to tell you there is something eminently worthy of attention buried beneath these words. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Consider who we are and who we are now, I and what we feel ourselves to be even when divine grace is that powerful work in us. And yet, beloved, we are called sons of God. It is said that when one of the learned heathens was translating this, he stopped and said, no, it cannot be. Let it be written subject, not sons. 
For it is impossible we should be called the sons of God. What a high relationship is that of a son and his father. What privileges a son has from his father. What liberties a son may take with his father. And oh, what obedience the son owes to his father. And what love the father feels toward the son. But all that and more than that, we now have through Christ. Behold, ye angels, stop, ye seraphs. Here is a thing more wonderful than heaven with its walls of jasper. Behold, universe, open thine eyes, O world. Behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not well we are content to go with him in his humiliation for we are to be exalted with him amen amen and there's more but we shall stop there behold behold point number one for our consideration this morning the text clearly speaks to the love of God. And we must know that God the Father loves us unconditionally. Unconditionally. What kind of love? Behold, stop, go no further until you get this. Behold, wait, do not proceed without laying hold of this truth. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. What kind of, the, 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 the language kind of implies this, what kind of peculiar foreign, out-of-this-world kind of love is that this Father gives us. It's not normal. It's, not, it's way beyond anything we can comprehend. What kind of love is that? The actual implication of the text, but know God loves you. To know God loves you is great information, and it's great knowledge to possess. But just knowing it will not transform your lives, folks. It will not transform your life. You can't know that God loves you. you got to know the love of God. you got to know the love of God. And that only comes when we come to Christ in repentance and confess Him as our Lord and Savior. Now we can know the love of God. Way better, way better than knowing God loves you, right? Way better. But God. I preached a sermon one time up at Lansing, and the guys have never forgot it. Every time I walk into the prison, they say, but God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, a love the unsaved can never know. They can never know. The world does not know. Remember the text? The world doesn't know. The world don't understand because it doesn't know the love of God. It doesn't know the love of God, folks, and that's the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. But to those who believe, there it is. But God, but to those. You see the transitions? But to those who believe, he called his children. Can we get our minds around that? Can we possibly comprehend the depth of what it means to be called a child of God? You've heard it said, and very improperly so. Well, don't you believe that all people are God's children? No! No, that's, that's violates Scripture. It contradicts Scripture. We can credit God with the creation of all humanity, 
But he's not going to adopt you until you come to Christ, until you come to a saving knowledge of his son. So no, all children are not God. All, all, all people are not God's children. Only those who believe. Why is that so difficult for, for, for so many to get their heads around? He was in the world, John says in his gospel account. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in this name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, this must have been very important, not just to John, but under the leading and unction of the Holy Spirit. It was important that we understand this truth. Who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. The incomprehensible, unfathomable truth that God loves you and I, God loves us unconditionally, is the driving truth that compels us in our Christian walk. First John tells us who we are because of God's love and our belief. Then he tells us what we shall be. God's love for us does not stop with the new birth. It continues through our lives. It takes us right up to the return of Christ. When our Lord appears, all true believers will see him and will become like him. This means, of course, that they will have new glorified bodies suited for heaven. We get to shed all of this. Amen? You ever struggle with weight loss? Well, it's going to happen someday when we shed all of this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Does that turn your crank? It ought to. We, we are going to someday live forever in eternity. Now listen, you're going to live forever somewhere. Don't, don't miss that. But we are forever creatures. We have an eternal spirit that's going to dwell somewhere forever. But if you want to dwell somewhere forever with Christ, you better fix your eyes on him and the work that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary for shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for being buried, for rising on the third day, for the hope of the resurrection, and the absolute hope that he's coming back to get all those who believe. Amen. That's the hope that we share. And we'll be like him. Now, we're not going to be little gods. Don't, don't go that route. That's another religious teaching. And, and we're not going that route. We don't become little gods. But we do get glorified eternal bodies, and we'll look just like him. So what are you going to do in heaven? Are you going to fly around flapping your wings above clouds? Oh, I hope not. If that's heaven, I don't necessarily care to be there. We're not going to be angels, guys. I don't know where that teaching came from. Angels were a set created order of beings. It has not been added to since the moment that God created them, and it will not be taken away. We are going to rule over angels. The angels, actually, according to the Scripture, peer into these things. They long to understand what it is about human beings that makes the gospel so special. Because they don't have the capacity to understand that in a real sense. They didn't have to be born again. The believer is born again. Somebody help me. I'm off track. <laughs> but, but, but folks the beauty of this appearing of Christ and becoming like he is John says it hasn't appeared yet what we will be I think he means that the exact nature of our life in heaven is unknown when I share the gospel I often get these questions about heaven you know what it be like what are we going to do there 
while the Bible really doesn't uh, go into great detail, God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to just give us enough to make us hungry. (laughs) Does that make sense? He's given us enough truth to just make us yearn to know more and realize that I'm really only going to understand when I get there. And I believe that's by his very divine intent. So God the Father loves us unconditionally. Secondly, God the Son died for us sacrificially. And as we look at the text, John turns from who we are and Christ's future appearing to Christ's first appearing. And he says, why did he come? Why did he come? Two reasons. Take away sins, destroy the works of the devil. He makes it very clear. We have atonement and redemption. John describes sin as lawlessness. This does not mean we are under the law and break the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. We are under grace. But this does not give us license to live lawless lives, okay? I want to read this passage, Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to try to slow down. Connie, you back there? Slow down. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And and Paul would have basically shouted that. (laughs) You know, by no means. May it never be. Do you not know that if you present your bodies to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sins, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are now committed. And what's that? That's the scriptures. That's the scriptures, the apostolic teachings. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, the state of holiness and separation. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And here's one of the most well-known passages in the Roman roads of salvation. For the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? That's all you're going to earn. That's your wage. If we're going to live in sin, then we're going to get paid with death. You see? Simple. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and all of God's people said, 
Amen. The pursuit of righteousness is the evidence of the love of God in us through regeneration. Christ has been born our sin. He has bore our sin, borne our sins, and removed our sins, and we now stand in his righteousness. Celebrate the victory. Amen? But what about the rebellious nature that still lingers? What about that that nature that just pulls on us and tugs on us. I was reminded of a little story, and, and a father was having a little disciplinary issue with his child, and, and the child didn't want to sit at the dinner table. And he just, he just you know, said, now listen, you know, you, I want you to sit down. I want you to listen to what your dad is saying. I want you to sit right there right now. And you know what the child does. We've all seen it, Right? Or we're still doing it today. You know, I still do that once in a while. You just don't quite as graphic, but we're doing it just like a little girl. Here's the point of the story. Little boy, they sat there for just a little bit and said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. That's rebellion, folks. That's the rebellious spirit. And God loves us anyway. God loves us anyway. But I want to go to the key very quickly here, verse 6, because everything kind of, kind of pivots on this. And, and let, let, let me just read it again, please. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That's a powerful verse. So does that mean we live sin-free lives? Everybody say no. Very good. So what does it mean? I share something that uh, preacher and author Chuck Smith wrote. At first glance, this verse is disturbing to any of us. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has either seen him or known him. Does that mean you have to live a perfect life in order to know God? If so, none of us are abiding in him. That's what he says. John told us in chapter 1 that we all sin. And if we say we don't have sin, we make God to be a liar and we're deceiving ourselves. But the word here for sin is in what is called, and this is, see, that's why I read things from smarter men than I, is in the Greek linear present. Now, you, everybody came here this morning wanting to know that, didn't you? You wanted to know, you know, I've struggled all my life, preacher, with that verse 6, and I just want to know what tense of the Greek it's in. But here's what it means. What John is saying is, you can't just continue to sin as a pattern of life and think you are a Christian. It is not that we don't sin at all. It's just that the pattern of our lives is to grow away from the old sinful habits. And though we still make mistakes and may fall, our lives have changed. This is the observable pattern of repentance. In other words... John is saying you cannot possibly live day after day, month after month, year after year in habitual sin and rebellion against God and be born again. It just doesn't match up. That's the firm test that he gives. Celebrate Christ's redemption and atoning power. He has taken away our sins, and he has destroyed the works of the devil. Destroy here does not mean annihilate. It means to render inoperative. I love that. Render inoperative. Whatever ground you give Satan, you have to surrender it willingly because power has defeated that old rascal at the cross of Christ. He is defeated. He is a defeated enemy. The only thing he can lead us into are those things which I'm willing to follow him after. 
That's it. He's defeated. His power has been broken. He has been robbed of power, rendered inoperative. Christ has broken the power of sin over us and removed the penalty of sin from us. We simply must submit to the power of Christ in us and resist the devil. And the scripture says, he'll flee. He'll flee from us. Satan has been defeated. Last point very quickly. God the Holy Spirit energetically lives in us. God the Holy Spirit lives in us energetically. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him. There it is. That's it. The seed. The seed is the presence of God himself. And he dwells in us. I'm going to read through some points here in closing. Why would we not keep on sinning? Because we have a new nature. And that new nature is... is Hate sin. Hate sin. John calls this new nature God's seed. Secondly, when a person receives Christ as Savior, a spiritual change takes place in him. We are given a new standing before God. We are accepted as righteous in God's sight. We now have a standing called justification, and it never changes, and no one is ever lost after that. The new Christian is also given a new position. He is set apart for God's own purposes to live for his glory. This new position is called sanctification, and it's a way of changing from day to day. Perhaps the more dramatic change is a new believer is what we call regeneration. He is born again into the family of God. Re means again and generation means birth. We are born again. How many of you here today have two birthdays? Come on. You have two birthdays, okay? One was born in sin. One was born into righteousness. What a deal, huh? All because of what Christ has done. Justification means a new standing before God. Sanctification being set apart to God. And regeneration means we have the nature of God. Hallelujah! We are free. The only way to enter God's family is by trusting Christ and experiencing this new birth. Everyone, 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Physical life produces physical life. Spiritual life produces spiritual life. That which is born of the flesh and that which is born of the spirit, John 3 and verse 6. The questions for us to answer right now are as follows. And we must listen very carefully to these five closing questions. Do I have the divine nature within me or am I merely pretending to be a Christian? Remember the title of the sermon, The Peril of Pretending. Secondly, do I cultivate this divine nature by daily Bible reading and prayer? And I would include the fellowship of the brethren being part of a church body on a regular basis, worshiping together, encouraging one another along life's journey. Thirdly, has any unconfessed sin defiled my inner man? Am I willing to confess and forsake it? Do I allow my old nature to control my thoughts and desires? Or does the divine nature rule my life?
And number five, when temptation comes, do I play with it or flee from it? Do I immediately yield to the divine nature within me? You see, the life that is real is a life that is honest with God, with ourselves in these vital issues. No more pretending. God has never been fooled. Never. No more pretending. Be real. Be free. Be filled with hope. Be victorious. Christ has won. And we who are in Christ share in that victory right now upon our profession of faith. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had I thank you for the word that you have given us. Father, I thank you that you have made it possible through your infinite grace and love and mercy to provide a way for us to be saved, to provide that avenue of becoming your children through the new birth, bringing us new life, new hope, and a new way of living. You are a great and awesome God, Father. And everything about you transcends, and rightly so, transcends our imagination and our understanding. We cannot possibly, possibly know you to your fullest degree. But yet we can know you as our God, our Father, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Sustainer, and our hope that you have given us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be all glory honor, and praise from this day forward and forevermore. Amen. Please stand as we have our song of invitation this morning. I still hear it rumbling and raining out there. You don't want to go out there yet. But folks, this, this is it. And, and if there's someone here this morning that's, maybe they're struggling with their faith. Maybe they're just not quite sure that they are a child of God. They really want to be. They really want to be. But they just need that confirmation that their faith is enough. Guys, that, that's not an unusual problem. And I assure you, your faith is enough if it's in Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary. But whatever your need is, I assure you of this, God may not immediately take that that thing away that's a burden to you right now, but he'll doggone sure give you the, the strength and the might to endure because he'll be in it with you. He'll be in it with you every step of the way.